Last week, we looked at how Solomon's kingdom was seen as the peak of the Hebrew Bible. Much of the Bible before it is looking forward to his reign with hope, and the parts of the Bible written after it, at least in the Hebrew Bible, are looking back on his reign with nostalgia. But his kingdom was marked not so much with war and bloodshed like David's was, but was, was with God's shalom in an era of rest or Sabbath. And this shaped the expectations of Jesus as the Messiah for the people of the New Testament, because they saw him as the next Solomon to usher in an era of eternal peace, the coming Sabbath age. And we saw on a personal level that people thought if we just had a king like David or Solomon, then we would be happy. Yet their two kingdoms still had tons of issues. We looked at how we complete the sentence, if I only had blank, then I would be happy. But God's word shows us we need a heart shift to, I have all I need to be satisfied in you, God. And I trust you with what I still want and still long for. Ultimately, we see, especially in these texts that we've been going through, that God is trustworthy. And so tonight, we'll see that God is so trustworthy. He is leading us and guiding us into good things. If you leave with anything from this, leave ready to joyfully obey the word of God because you know it's showing you, showing us, who he created us to be. So it says this, this is in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, and I'm going to go through largely verse by verse. It says, Later, Solomon formed an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, by marrying his daughter. Solomon brought her to the city of David uh, until he finished building his palace and, and the house of the Lord, as well as the wall around Jerusalem. So the passage we're reading tonight, it's, it's actually going to be dripping with subtle references and callbacks to the Torah or the five books of Moses. See, they were actually already in this sentence is a callback to the provisions for a king and elsewhere in the book of Kings. Uh, even though God was supposed to be their king, it says that if they were to have a king, this is in Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 and 17, it says even if they're going to have a king, the king must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire more horses. For the Lord has said, you are never to go back that way again. He must not take many wives for himself, lest his heart go astray. He must not accumulate for himself large amounts of silver and gold. But right here, we saw just in that verse, Solomon is marrying a princess from Egypt. Now elsewhere in the book of 1 Kings, and we see also in First and Second Chronicles, he had 700 wives and even more concubines. There was literally a city just for all the horses and chariots he had. And the Bible also tells us that he accumulated about 666 talents of gold. Now, seven is a number of completion in the Bible, but six is a number of incompletion. And God is trying to show us that Solomon may have made the kingdom incredibly wealthy and prosperous, but it would be short-lived because he was ignoring the warnings of the Bible that we just read. Yet he's a bit more morally complex than that. And we'll see that back in 1 Kings in chapter 3. The people, however, were still sacrificing on the high places because a house for the name of the Lord had not yet been built. And Solomon loved the Lord and walked in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for it was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar there. Now this might sound kind of strange to us, but it marks a shift in the Old Testament. See, there was to be one place of worship all the way back in the Torah, and it started out with the Ark of the Covenant in what's called the tabernacle, or sometimes called the tent of meeting, that Moses built and was built during his time. This tabernacle had always been near Jerusalem, or at least for a long time, but it was in the neighboring city 
of Gibeon. So right near Jerusalem was the city of Gibeon where it was. But the Ark of the Covenant had a much more complicated journey. So if you've been around a while, you can actually check out our episode um, where we look at the significant battle against the Philistines in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 4 through 7. Uh, and the Israelites used the Ark of the Covenant in this battle against the Philistines, sort of like a good luck charm. But God actually, uh, to show them, uh, allows them to lose the battle because they're treating him like he's in this box, like he's this magic good luck charm. And God shows that he doesn't need them. He doesn't need us or an army to win a battle. And the presence of the Ark creates so much trouble for the Philistines that they send it back to the Israelites. And for a long time, the Ark was in or around Jerusalem, and there were essentially two tabernacles. There was the original from the time of Moses at Gibeon, and there was one in Jerusalem. Now, there's a whole lot more to this, but in Deuteronomy 12, God tells the Israelites that they must not worship on the top of any mountain, often called a high place. Uh, and this is exactly what Solomon's doing and why they kind of say he followed in all the statutes of his father, David, except this thing in Deuteronomy, this very important command not to worship uh, in a high place or on just any mountain. They were only allowed to worship and offer sacrifices on the mountain in Jerusalem. So we see right here, Solomon is pretty morally gray and with a rocky start. He's mostly following the teachings of Moses, but he goes against the command or a few commands by marrying the Pharaoh's daughter and is going to offer sacrifices at a high place. Yet we are about to see that God is going to use a broken and imperfect person for his perfect will. So in verse five, it says, one night at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. And God said, ask and I will give it to you. Solomon replied, you have shown, shown much uh, loving devotion. Uh, that's that Hebrew word has said uh, to your servant. My father David, uh, his, servant, uh, his father David, because he walked before you in faithfulness, righteousness, and uprightness of heart. And you have maintained this loving devotion, this has said, by giving him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. And now, O oh Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in my father David's place, but I am only a little child, not knowing how to go out or come in. Now that phrase really fascinated me, to go out and come in. It seems kind of confusing or like a strange thing to say, but it's actually really prevalent in the Bible. It, it's a picture of a shepherd who lets his sheep out of the pen during the day to graze, but then at night brings them often into his own home or the gates of his sheep pen would often be right where his home is. And so he's letting them out during the day, but they're coming in at night for protection. This is the picture that's often used of Moses. He's leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land. It's also used of David who would go out to battle with his men and would come back in to rest or to celebrate after battle. And if the Israelites, uh, if they would go out and then come in uh, when they would lose, like they did with the ark, it was actually seen as a time needed for repentance, this going out and coming in. Then there is Solomon, who with his wisdom would go out to the people of Israel and he would invite them to the palace to, meet, to help meet their needs. He would go out to see them, to see their way of life, to see the things actually going on in his kingdom, and he would invite them in to experience all the goodness and splendor of his kingdom. But the king wasn't meant to be a boss who ordered people around like the other nations, but the king was seen as a shepherd who guided and protected his people as they go out and come in. It says in verse eight, your servant is here among the people. You have chosen a people too numerous to count or number. Therefore, give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? 
Now it pleased the Lord that Solomon had made this request. So God said to him, since you have asked for this, instead of requesting long life or wealth for yourself or death for your enemies, but you have asked for discernment to administer justice, behold, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there has never been nor will ever be another like you. Moreover, I will give you what you did not request, both riches and honor, so that during your, uh, all your days, no man in any kingdom will be your equal. So if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes, my commandments, just as your father David did, I will prolong your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. So he returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then he held a feast for all his servants. Now this is often told as, you know, maybe if you grew up kind of in children's church, this cute story of how Solomon asked for wisdom rather than riches or fame, and God gave him all three. But there's actually something much bigger and much more significant happening here. So we're going to go to the deep end of the pool. It's in the Garden of Eden. We see a similar story in Genesis chapter 3, where it says that the, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, this is to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God said you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The key phrase here in this passage is that the fruit was good for making one wise, to know both good and evil. Solomon is essentially given the same test here. Adam and Eve had been given a commandment not to eat from the tree in the middle, but to cultivate the rest of the garden and, and to be able to enjoy and eat the rest of it as well. Solomon is commanded to tend the sheep of Israel rather than, than tend the garden in this case, but he is given an opportunity, just like they were, to eat from the tree in a manner of speaking, to be a king just like the others, or to ask for the kinds of thing that maybe another a king would ask. And Satan lies to Eve in the Genesis passage, saying the fruit will make them like gods. The literal Hebrew is plural, by the way. Uh, it's not just God, it's gods. And it's not the kind of uh, like a good thing of, oh, we want to be like God and becoming like Jesus. It's more like the Tower of Babel. This is uh, Adam and Eve seeing that it, is, it, it could be a way for them to become a god themselves or to become gods themselves. And by the way, notice Satan is lying to them. I know, big shock, but we need this reminder. When Jesus is tempted at the beginning of his ministry, um, I believe it's in Matthew 4, uh, he is told that if he bows to Satan, all the kingdoms of the world will be his. And yet the kingdoms of the world already belong to Jesus and are under his authority already. See, one of Satan's biggest lies in our lives as well is to convince us that we don't have what we already have or to convince us that we need what we don't actually need. And Adam and Eve did not need to be gods. They already could live forever with God in the garden, but they chased after wisdom in the sense of knowing between good and evil. The Hebrew word for wisdom here is sakal. It can be translated as uh, to prosper or to have success. Uh, a good example of this is when David, when he was successful in battle, that, that word is sakal, that he acted wisely in battle. And so it, it brought success to him. He led wisely, uh, it brought him success. Uh, one of the biggest temptations that we will have in our lives is to disregard God for our own success, for this sakal, as Adam and Eve 
we're tempted to. We are essentially saying, I want to be in your place, God. It's very different to say to your boss, uh, I want to be a pastor like you. I want to play guitar like you. I, I want to be successful like you are. That's something that, that if you were to say to a supervisor or a mentor or something like that, I'm sure it gets them excited and stuff like that. I want to do things like you do. I want to be, become more like you. But what many of us are tempted to do is really to, to say or at least think in our hearts, I want to be a, to be a pastor not like you, but I want to be pastor instead of you. I want to lead the band instead of you. I want to be successful instead of you. So Adam and Eve's big sin here is that they didn't want to become like God necessarily, but they wanted to be God instead of him. And the temptation, the temptation was to use wisdom, sakal, or worldly success to do so. So let's go to the, the, you know, further into the deep end of the pool. The word for wisdom we looked at last week is hakam, that Solomon was an ish hakam, a man of wisdom and a man of shalom. Hakam describes a skill uh, that you become better at. Think of playing a musical instrument. It requires skill. It's going to take learning scales. When I was learning to preach, I had to sit under a mentor who was skilled at public speaking so I could learn uh, this, this set of skills that led him to be so good at what he did. He had all kinds of wisdom earned from years of cultivating it. Often we see people with success or sakal, and we don't realize that that wisdom that led to success came from wisdom of developing those skills or that hakam. But Solomon asked for a discerning heart and God says he will give Solomon hakam and that the wisdom will also lead him to wise ruling or success. See, Solomon asked first for a wise and discerning heart. Uh, and he also asked it uh, with a different motive than Adam and Eve. He asked for the wisdom to discern between good and evil, not so that he can take the place of God, but so that he can serve God and his people well. This is a monumental moment in the Hebrew Bible where Solomon gives us a taste of what it looks like to undo the curse of the Garden of Eden. And despite all his flaws, this is why Solomon is so revered. He wanted wisdom to bless others. He wasn't so concerned about success itself. He wanted wisdom to bless others rather than success for himself, which is the opposite of what Adam and Eve did. However, it's not quite complete as we saw last week and as we saw earlier tonight. Because Jesus came as one greater than Solomon to fully break the curse of sin from the garden. If you were here from our Romans series, you may remember that Romans 5 is all about the curse of sin coming from one man's disobedience, but the gift of grace comes from one man, meaning Jesus's obedience on the cross. Let's go back to that phrase earlier when Solomon asked for wisdom because he doesn't know how to come in or to go out, which once again is an idiom for shepherding God's people. Uh, if anyone thought that maybe some of that stuff about Satan's temptation and that idiom, maybe you're going, ah, it's kind of dubious. These words from Jesus wrap it up with a nice bow. In John 10, verse 7 through 10, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And notice this, they will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. My question for you, for all of us, is who is your shepherd? Are you going in and coming out as Jesus directs? In other words, are you surrendered and submitted to the authority of God's word over your life? Or are we trying to be the captain of the ship, the master of our souls, in place 
of God. And I ask, do you see God as trustworthy? Or are we believing the lies of the enemy, which are offering us what we already have in God? Because we already have abundant life. We can already have this wisdom and skill that will lead us to Sakal. We already have that through Jesus. Do you see God not only as trustworthy, but do you see God as good? Do you see God as desiring for you to have abundant life? I wanted to end uh, just with one final story. Um, when I was in college, I really struggled a lot with FOMO, or uh, some people are now calling it FOBO. FOMO being fear of missing out, FOBO being fear of better options. Uh, I went to San Jose State my first two years of college. Some of you have been around and heard me talk about this. And I remember I, I just struggled so much um, that, that I, I wanted to go to the colleges and the places that my friends went. And if you were uh, staying home for school, if, if you're going to you know maybe a, a junior college, community college, if you're going you know, to a local school and living at home, you are probably seeing your friends' Instagrams uh, of them studying abroad or them, you know, going to some hot Christian college or whatever school it is and joining a fraternity or sorority and thinking, I wish that was me. I wish I got to do that. And, and often I, I remember saying um, to God, like, I, I just wish I wasn't going to San Jose State. I, I wish that I was at Azusa Pacific or Biola, which I would eventually get to go to school at APU. Um, but I remember struggling with that, and maybe you're struggling as well. And I feel like there were so many times that I was listening to the lie of the enemy that you don't have enough, that, that you should be going there, that then you'll be happy if you go there. And, and I remember sort of the word of wisdom that I was given that, that really helped me through the season, and maybe it'll help you as well, uh, was to grow where you are. You know, God has me at San Jose State for whatever reason it was for however many years. I didn't know how long it would be. I didn't know it would be two years at first. And I just said, okay, I'm going to dive in deep. I'm, I'm going to go headfirst into organizations like Crew, or as it was known then, Campus Crusade for Christ. I'm going to dive into volunteering with middle school at my home church. I'm going to dive into getting involved in our college and young adult group. Um, you know, my, my mom and dad weren't Christian. So I said, I'm going to really dive into obedience to them and trusting that that's going to help win them over to Jesus, which it largely did. Both my brothers came to Christ during those two years. And uh, my mom had started coming to church and become a Christian during those two years. And there was so much blessing. Uh, and yet, yet so much of that time, I was still longing for something more for something I thought I needed that I didn't need or something I wanted or thought I wanted that I didn't realize I already had. I had a great church. I was having a great college experience. I was getting to live with all these Christian guys, um, you know, downtown San Jose. And I, I didn't realize until later how I already had it all. It was all so good. And then I got the chance to go to Azusa Pacific. It was great. I had a good time. I made lots of friends. I had that college experience that I thought I wanted. And yet if I could go back in time, um, I wouldn't trade it. I, I wouldn't trade going to APU or Biola or Cal Baptist or wherever uh, all four years. I, I, I would still gladly, in a heartbeat, choose those two years. Because really, all along, I had what I longed for. And I just didn't realize it. And maybe in this season of life, God is calling you. God is trying to prod or prompt you to see that he has abundant life for you right here, right now. And if we're not careful, we'll miss it. Uh, it reminds me of uh, a movie that, that Gracie and I watched uh, a while back called Don't Look Up. And uh, 
it you know it, it's a very political movie it's a real star-studded cast it's basically this giant metaphor for climate change and so it's got a lot of those actors and actresses who are really big advocates uh you know for doing something about it and um uh, there's there's these moments where there's uh, the metaphor is that a giant meteor is coming towards the earth and is going to destroy it and it's and these scientists are calling attention to it and people are going whoa why you got to be so negative and so on and the scientists you know it's a whole metaphor for climate change um, and and they try to do something about it but it's a little too late and their efforts fail because they didn't take it seriously enough and the meteor is coming towards the earth there's nothing that they can do to stop it. And it, it kind of just becomes almost this comedy of what life would devolve into. Um, and it, it's sort of this, this tongue-in-cheek comedy. But I, I just, I, I remember at the end, if you stayed with me, um, is they're having dinner, almost like this Shabbat dinner, uh, right before the end of the world. And this meteor is coming. The world is about to basically burst into flames. You can feel the effects. And, and they're trying to almost just enjoy one last meal together, the, the main characters as a family, and to put aside their differences. And there's just this, this fantastic line um, where I, I think it was Leonardo DiCaprio's character. He looks around and says, you know, we really had it all, didn't we? We really had it all. And I know that movie's about something much different, but I thought about my own relationship with God. That so often I'm looking forward saying, if only I'd blame, then I'd be happy. When really all along, God already has abundant life for us or I think I need something that I don't really need. And God is saying, all you need is what I have for you. And as, I, and as I've gotten older, as I'm able to look back, I think, man, I really have it all. I really had it all, didn't I? And, and so that's been at the present. Gracie and I just try to look at each other every now and again and, and just bask in the goodness, whether it's a hard season or an easy season in life, we just look at each other and go, we really have it all, don't we? We have it all right now the abundant life that jesus longs for us to see that we have in him we really do have it all